Today is Wednesday, April 15th, 2020, and you're tuned in to the Too Fast Podcast, where the future farmers and agricultural specialists are serving you the weekly scoop on the world. And I'm your host, Candle the Farm Plug. This podcast is brought to you by Tuskegee University's College of Agriculture, Environment, and Nutrition Sciences, Tuskegee University's Cooperative Extension Program, and Anchor FM. We're currently available on many platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, and Radio Public. And here we are today with our Wednesday edition of the Weekly Scoop. The University of Pennsylvania Stuart Wiseman School of Design and Tuskegee University's Robert R. Taylor School of Architecture and Construction Science are partnering to increase the visibility of histories of the American Civil Rights Movement and its built landscape and environmental legacies. Under the 18-month partnership, UPenn and Tuskegee will collaborate to document and activate culturally significant buildings, sites, towns, and landscapes in part through a collaboration with the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. They will also explore successful preservation, planning, and development strategies for small towns. Savoy, a leading African-American business and lifestyle magazine, has included three Tuskegee University alumni among its list of the 2020 most influential Black executives in corporate America. This list of African-American executives, influencers, and achievers is part of the magazine's spring issue, released on March 31st, and now available at SavoyNetwork.com and newsstands worldwide. Gregory S. Dixon oversees Dencor International's global operations as its chief administrative officer, chief legal officer, and corporate secretary. Patrick Smith is the executive vice president and head of financial wellness and strategy at Cleveland, Ohio-based KeyBank. And finally, Baron M. Witherspoon Sr. serves as Procter & Gamble's global vice president for industry affairs and its corporate race initiative. The Kroger Company recently announced a new partnership with the Tuskegee University Tiger's Den Food Pantry as part of its community grant Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation, which is committed to ending hunger in its communities and eliminating waste across its company by 2025. In response to a host of obstacles and hardships threatening students' ability to continue their studies remotely, Tuskegee University recently announced the availability of a donor-funded student emergency fund. Gifts to the Student Emergency Fund campaign launched on Friday, March 27th, quickly exceeded its $50,000 goal over a weekend, and support has grown to more than $70,000. Alumni and friends resounding in quick response has meant that leaders in the university's Division of Student Affairs have already funded more than 100 requests and counting, resulting from students' efforts to adapt to unexpected transitions. Biden's plans on his initial $750 billion policy proposal to address the mounting student debt crisis, which was centered on income-based repayment. Individuals making more than $25,000 would be asked to pay no more than 5% of discretionary income toward loan payment after 20 years. 
After meeting that obligation, all outstanding federal loan balances would be forgiven. The head coach of Clark Atlanta's basketball team, George Lynch, has launched a national campaign to get devices in the hands of HBCU student-athletes who need it. For more info, check out hbcugameday.com. And now it's time for an interview with Dr. Jasmine Ratliff. Also, be sure to follow us on all social media and be sure to register for Earth Week 2020 as we dive deeper into the green rush in the cannabis industry. More information can be found if you Google Earth Week, capital T, capital U, 2020, hemp, and Eventbrite, and it's 100% free. See you there. Today is Friday, April 3rd, 2020, and you're tuned in to the Too Fast Podcast, where the future farmers and agricultural specialists are serving you the weekly scoop on the world. I'm your host, Candle the Farm Plug, and we're here today with Dr. Jasmine Ratliff of Tuskegee University's College of Agriculture. Jasmine Ratliff is a New Orleans native who has a former background in business management and human resources. After realizing the consistent inequalities in her hometown's rebuilding efforts post-Hurricane Katrina, she decided to obtain a master's degree in community planning from Auburn University. AmeriCorps VISTA granted Dr. Ratliff the opportunity to be the project coordinator for a community garden in Tuskegee, Alabama, where she saw the desperate need for local food systems firsthand. She executed her Ph.D. defense in integrative public policy and development and continues to assist in the creation of much-needed local food systems. Dr. Ratliff currently serves as the board president for the Alabama Sustainable Agricultural Network, or ASAN, a nearly 20-year-old statewide organization. ASAN attracted Dr. Ratliff's interest through their efforts in building relations to bring a sustainable and just food system to Alabama, and she is on board to do her part. So how did this historic event, Hurricane Katrina, affect you and your family, and does that time period compare similarly to this current COVID-19 pandemic? Well, yeah. Um, Like I was telling you before, I really haven't talked about Katrina before publicly, um, but... Um, yeah, Katrina definitely affected us. We lost everything, like everything. We lived in Pontchartrain Park, um, which is located in the upper ninth ward of New Orleans. And we mm. did have over eight feet of water. Um, mm. And I guess I'm kind of just going back through the times, like what happened once we knew the storm was going like to take place. We left and we didn't go too far. We had some family in Baton Rouge and it was supposed to take one hour to drive, but it definitely took about seven hours. Wow. And, that I mean, <laughs> thinking about that ride, like you know, not having a phone, not talking to your friends. Where are you going to Texas? Are you going to Atlanta? Like it was just a really hectic time. Um, but when we did get to Baton Rouge, it was like a four bedroom house for my cousin, and we had about twenty five people staying there with us, and like nine months to about eighty three in a wheelchair. So it was a very, mm-hmm. very, very trying time, especially since the storm followed us. Um, like I said, we only went to Baton Rouge. And we ended up with out power for about seven days. So mm. 
that was a lot with all those people there. And then um, I guess I'm I'm kind of comparing right now to um, COVID since I was out of school for almost a month, like just not in school, like not going to school. Not There was no online classes at that time for high school. And that wasn't the wave. Um, but <laughs> it's like I went to McKinley, shout out to Boosie, like just for a few weeks, though. Um, it was it was really nice to see um, the the people in Baton Rouge accepting us, and especially I had some classmates that came there too. Um, but then um, I went back to like New Orleans area, so Jefferson Parish is the neighboring parish of Orleans counties. For people who don't know about parishes in Louisiana, um, mm. but yeah, I went there. Um, I went back because my dad's job said that they'll put a trailer inside of their warehouse. So my mom was like, yes, we leaving out of this house with all these people. So we went and I was enrolled into a school up until December. Um, that was still not my regular school. Um, so I went to three different schools within like three different months. And that was, that was a lot of transitioning. But my original school, um, Benjamin Franklin High School, um, it reopened back in January. And we didn't even have a cafeteria. The first floor was not accessible. And we had just remodeled our gym. It was crazy. Um, just, wow. just remodeled our house. Like that was crazy. But um, yeah, we, it was like really, really, really long school days. So I'm kind of glad that like people are not going to be in school. Like they're not ask, asking students to come back because that was an extended day that I felt like it was just too taxing on us. Like as a student, like you just went through all this trauma and now you got us in school until like five o'clock and it was just bad. We was eating Papa John's every day and I was eating baked chips trying to balance it out because we really did not have a cafeteria as a high school. But Wow. So, I mean, that's interesting too, right? So even through that situation, food still seems to pop up, you know? <laughs> so can you touch more on that? I guess maybe in, in retrospect, now that you're looking at healthy communities and what that looks like, um, what do you, what would you say about that? Like having to eat Papa John's and you said you ate baked chips to like balance it out. What, what expound on that some more, if you don't mind. I mean, honestly, that was what we had. Like that was the only options. That wasn't like mm. I was, uh, able to go off campus. There was no off campus lunch and things like that. Like they, you got the pizza that was delivered and mm. sometimes it was a dollar a slice. I feel like, I don't remember if we got it for free or not. I honestly don't think so. So just wow. yeah, just knowing that that was all you had, and it it ranged true with. I mean, even after, um, with the grocery stores, like the lack of the rebuilding of them in low income communities, and just the lack of reinvestment, and people really just go with what they have, which is a corner store or some type of food store that doesn't have <laughs> produce, and they're just kind of getting what they can, and um, yeah, that definitely speaks volumes, and I feel like it's it's reverberating everywhere. Like in like 2008, 2009, when the recession started happening, it was a lot of black families and, and communities of color that were hit that had started to build wealth and really felt that. So I, I just think it's interesting how, you know, when we talk about resilience. It's not about, you know, when something happens. It's about before and after, you know, that that proper um, being prepared and just knowing and having insurance and having all of these things in place to be able to protect you. Right. And funny story about being prepared. I feel like my mom is the most prepared person that I've ever met. Um, she had mm. insurance on every appliance, every content in the house, on the structure of the house, which somehow did not include Hurricane Katrina damage. But <laughs> the collateral. Um, so mm. I mean, let's back up. We had insurance. But when FEMA started giving out everybody checks, it was only going to people who didn't have insurance originally. 
So we were somehow penalized in the beginning. Um, that's why I said we actually stayed in that trailer in the FEMA in the FEMA trailer in the warehouse for a good ten months as we were just waiting, like just waiting on FEMA to say, okay, you can rebuild your house. You have this much money, and it never happened. Like it just never happened since we had insurance. The contents were cleared, but we still had a mortgage. We still had mm-hmm. a house that was not rebuilt. I mean, what what is what good is it for money to be? given to you for the clothes and like you know things that you had in there when you still don't have a house like that that right so just like fast forwarding 10 years later um we still had the original home that was damaged but my mom purchased another house within those 10 months that we were living in the trailer um through a loan with the small business association so sba gave us a loan to get a new house not gave us a loan We got a loan. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. giving grant money. Like we still never got any type of like compensation, but they listed our damaged house as collateral. So we didn't know that. That was like a really like predatory experience that um, just kind of came out at the end. And it came mm-hmm. out the en- at the end once, like, like I said, 10 years later, our neighborhood began to change demographics. So as we all know, gentrification just happens in places that the property is cheap and people know that it's going to increase um, value. So this was an all-Black neighborhood before and no longer is the case. And we just immediately started receiving code violations. We got seven code violations and it was over $1,800 to just go and file to the city and say that you fix the exterior siding or the exterior wall or the exterior paint. And I'm saying that as three separate violations and they all <laughs> refer to this one piece of siding that my dad and I nailed back up ourselves gave the pictures to city hall and they never accepted that these violations were rectified. So we were left with two choices. Um, we either had to sell the house or the city would place it up for auction. So it's just crazy how like the house went up just on the market that day. It was sold to a contractor. We were supposed to be able to like get the first look to be able to buy this house back from this person that purchased it from us. But he decided to never list the house and his family's currently living in it now. Um, and it's just really weird about the, the processes of like rebuilding, like you said, the resiliency of being prepared before and after, like who's prepared to have two mortgages. Like it's just, right. especially in the neighborhood or a low income family. And it's just like, y'all scrape to get the first one. So it's just, I don't know. It definitely hurts my heart to know that we lost just more than the stuff that was in the house and all the pictures and whatnot. Like we lost the whole house, like to the city. And it was nothing that we could do about it. And it was, yeah, it's it's definitely a true story that is still happening to this day. They're raising taxes on um, places that are, if they already own their homes, they're raising the taxes to just price people out. And mm-hmm. New Orleans lost a lot. They lost a lot of soul. It's dope though, right? You got to experience so many different cultures and and. You know, I think it's crazy that um, even how you touched on, they didn't let you all like not what you all were just not in school and like how now we're in online classes and things. And so I just think that's interesting in terms of how we allow ourselves to to deal with these things and how over time we, we create these mechanisms to be able to be innovative, you know, and still be able to persevere. So throughout all of these experiences, though, we're seeing a life experience based degree choice. Right. So. You then came to Auburn University and you did urban planning, right? So can you talk more about that? Yeah. So um, like I said, I got my business foundation in New Orleans and I was working in New Orleans and in the ninth ward where I'm from. And I just was realizing like it was poorly planned. The, re- the reinvestment after Katrina was just 
horrible and I wanted to be a part of the change and be a part of make make a difference like <laughs> what can I do so I, I started my research and I came across Auburn again like I'm like okay well let me let me see how is it um, gonna fit me this time and I had a great experience um, when I initially got there um, and I learned a lot about theory a lot about a, a lot about how cities are planned and it's mainly about commerce. <laughs> um, and then also it's really about the policy and um, the zoning and all these like legality parts of it. And you really can't like plan a city unless you have like, well, you can plan for a city, but the plan won't be implemented unless you have some type of policy or power. So I like, I did a degree. I did a lot of practical stuff with it. Um, and Auburn was a little challenging um, towards the end when my directors of the program switched. So I ended up graduating early and just trying to like figure out what is my next step. And mm -hmm. my next step led me into that policy, um, that policy <laughs> realm where I'm now mastering. So you went from different land grant institutions from predominantly white institutions to HBCUs and kind of bounced back and forth for a little bit. So what was that like and how did it help you? Yeah, so I definitely had like a, I guess, a very vast experience um and then just in such a short amount of time i did all this in like seven years like it's crazy um <laughs> maybe maybe about eight almost but um it's just like the 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 vast difference so i feel like xavier um they were very nurturing like tuskegee i feel like the hbcu holds my heart i feel like they hold me up they're on a pedestal they know that i'm valued they know that like as a person not just like as a number um, and I also feel that they helped me build resilience. Like I said, with the financial part in Xavier, like I have to figure it out. Like I didn't, I didn't <laughs> accept a full scholarship to end up paying for school. So it was just like, and I understand that they had to have certain restrictions because they did not have a lot of money to give out for scholarships. Whereas when I transferred to LSU, it was without a doubt, like it was a full ride. I even got a stipend, like they had that money and I got my refund check before school started when I transferred, of course, to LSU and Auburn. And it was like, okay, but when I'm at an HBCU, I'm waiting till October or, you know, and I'm just trying to make it do. But it was, it was definitely like, when I say just two tails of the coin. So like there was the challenges at HBCU, but that's where my heart is. That's why I feel like I'm nurtured and I feel like most supported. Um, but then at um, the 1862s, they, they had the resources. They showed me different approaches to systems, ways of doing things, even in um, like administration wise. Like I felt not saying people were more accessible, but systems work differently in mm -hmm. those different environments. So being back where I am now with my heart at Tuskegee, like it has shown me so much resilience, especially being this first graduating class of this PhD program. Like, what? <laughs> what is <laughs> what is the dissertation? Like, you know, what, what, what do I have to put in this? Or like, you know, what do I have to even do to get to this step? And it's been a, a learning progress for my advisors. It's been a learning progress for my cohort. I mean, I feel like everybody, even my mom is learning. Like, you got to do what again? Like, you a doctor now? Like, yes, I'm But why are you still writing? Well, listen, I still got to, you know, just tweak it a little bit more. So it's just been a lot of learning. And I mean, a lot of like, just reward. I, I feel like with my um, just vast experience and not sticking to just, okay, I only know the HBC route. Or I only know the PWI route. Like, I feel like I got both and I, I can hang you know, my weight in both. So I mean, I'm excited to have this behind me at this point. Right. And so let us know, what was your dissertation about? Like, what all did you put into it? And what did you end up, what, what were your conclusions? 
So my dissertation um, is really about looking at local food systems and how these local food systems can create community and economic development. Um, and I studied the Black Belt of Alabama, um, particularly where we are in Tuskegee, Macon County. I also studied um, Dallas County with Selma and then Montgomery. Um, I did some economic analysis with some implant software. I did some GIS analysis um, with the help of Dr. Fall and John. Uh-uh. I, oh, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These are a lot of acronyms. Can you okay. break this down? What is it? <laughs> yeah, that, that does make sense, right? So um, since I'm rolling them off, since I'm just still writing about them, um, <laughs> implant is like a really, really amazing software. It's impact analysis, implant, I don't I, I don't think it's a real acronym, but it's just really a software where you can find out anything uh, in any industry. So it's kind of weird to explain, but it affects policies. It affects people's grants. It affects people's business plans. So if the way I use it, I said that if I hire so many people in a local food system, this is the amount of money that it'll bring directly, indirectly, and also from whatever those people make in their salaries. So it's a really deep software, and it goes way deeper than that. I was just kind of scratching the surface, um, but it's, it was intense. <laughs> it was intense. I feel like overall, my findings just basically saw that in the Black Belt, we have a lot of low-income farmers who have limited resources, and um, they have a lot of opportunity, especially for young farmers, as all of our farmers are aging. Um, they have a lot of opportunity for a variety of crops, for increasing um, their the amount that they're growing, um, and also increasing the places that they are selling to. So I really um, honed in onto farm to school. I'm proposing this big, like, idea that we grow the food that we eat. <laughs> it's not like, <laughs> not like rocket science, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy. Just you mm. know, not paying people in China or wherever else to send us something that we have up the street. But I just want to know, like, you know, after this whole COVID situation, how do you see food and the relationships between people and their food after this whole pandemic situation clears up? Yeah, I'm I can't see it. I, I not saying I can't see it. I just I don't know what it's going to look like and right now. I know that food is going to be key, like right people are buying toilet paper and all things like that off the shelves and sanitizer, but the food shelves are going bare too. And if we're not getting more farmers to grow more food in our area, we're really going to be dependent on those imports. And when they slack up because of the new um, restrictions on any type of, I don't know what, what is going to come out of this for health wise and health codes, but people are going to be trusting local more. Like I know I already do. So I I see it as an opportunity. Like this is a I don't I don't see what exactly it's gonna look like, but I do see it being a need for more people to grow and more people to grow locally, and more mm. local food to be given locally and not <laughs> exported out. So we need some more avenues. Absolutely. Right. Like right now, this intergenerational learning, we don't like we don't know how long we have, so. We can't just download their information on a flash drive. So we really need to be building those relationships. I think right now, call somebody. If you had a grandma that you know, or uh, an auntie that used to have a garden, call her. See what she used to grow. What worked for her? What didn't work for her? What she used to cook with it? 
things like that. I feel like those are that's lost art right now. And it's just something that's needed. I really feel that we have to tap back into our our local, like I just our local growing ways. And I really hope that people who haven't thought about food or haven't thought about growing before, just to start. You can start with a seed. You can start with a transplant. Anything. I'm, I'm growing so much right now on my balcony that I literally have just a balcony. Mm. And I'm, like, excited about it. And I know that it's possible for anybody to do. So I feel like if you don't, if you don't, if you're not interested in growing, just at least support your local farmers and people who are doing this. So, yeah, it's all about support. It's all going to be about us coming together at the end and having compassion for each other um, for sure. 